0: I, I, would, I would just like to let the, the people know about this man, because he will do 90 minutes with me. I just want to do a couple of minutes on him. He is one of the finest human beings that I've ever known in my life. He happens to be true grit, man. He is down. He is together in every sense of the word. That's all.
1: That's a sensational thing to say. It's true. If you you carry on, I shall cry or do something. (laughs) The uh, let me change the subject. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're such a star. How would you define the word star? What is a star?
0: Star is an
1: egomaniac.
0: Star is uh, the gentlest (laughs) human being in the world. Star is a performer who cares about his business. A star is someone who doesn't care about anything except whether the mic is right, the music's right. Let me get out there and there better not be no service on. Star is also the guy that throws the big parties. Star is, is a, a whole collage, an emotional collage, that really, if you put all of the ingredients and laid them out end to end on a huge table, you would go, none of this will go together. But when you put it together, somehow that means Star
2: And that man would know, one of the biggest stars of the 20th century, and one of my dad, David Frost's favorite guests, the singer, dancer, actor, comedian, impersonator, and all-round entertainer Sammy Davis Jr. In the 1960s and 70s, Dad sat down with Sammy at least five times for extensive interviews in the US, Australia and the UK. Until recently, only two were known to exist, But earlier this year, I tracked down two more of the extended 90-minute one-on-one conversations. Large portions of what you'll hear in this episode from Davis have not been heard for 50 years.
0: I am the only performer that's done three, count them, one, two, three, 90-minute shows with David, just he and I.
2: When I was younger, I heard many people ask Dad what his best or most important interview had been. Not one to want to be confined to only one answer and therefore only recount one past triumph, he'd always jump on the precise qualifying word in the question and therefore entertain the room with different answers each time. But there was only ever one answer when asked who it was he most enjoyed interviewing, Sammy Davis Jr. But while I've always known of Dad's fondness for Sammy, I hadn't in fact seen the interviews in the same way as I had with Elton John or Richard Nixon. And I've so loved reviewing them and witnessing that friendship and the open conversations it led to. In this episode, we'll hear about Sammy's relationship with his father.
0: We got into the dressing room. My father said, if you ever do that again, I'm going to kill (laughs) you.
2: The way he never forgot
0: his roots. As a matter of fact, uh, I hate that phrase. that says, I come from the ghetto, because I don't think that any black performer ever left it the trappings of drink and drugs... I remember one night I walked on the stage and I was really whacked out of my head, man. And suddenly, I told the same joke
2: twice and didn't realise it. And his biggest fears. That's my fear,
0: that I'll wind up like Bojang's.
2: I'm Wilfred Frost, and this is Season 2 of The Frost Tapes. In this episode, we're exploring the life and career of one of the greatest all-round entertainers of all time, Sammy Davis Jr.
0: Now, I'll tell you something that I've never
2: said publicly before. Sammy Davis Jr. was born in 1925 in New York City to a family of accomplished performers. His father, Sammy Sr., was a traveling vaudeville entertainer. His mother, Elvira, was a chorus line dancer who spent most of her career wowing audiences in Harlem. When Sammy was just three years old, his parents split up, and his father, who had gained custody of his young son, took him on the road and immediately put him to work on the stage. In 1970, Dad asked Sammy about those early years.
1: What's the first thing you can remember? What's your first childhood memory?
0: Uh, I remember David standing in the wings as a child. I don't know, I, I was very young, but I remember standing in the wings of a theater, a vaudeville house, and waiting to go on. And I remember my father saying to me, don't put your hand up to your face, because I had blackface on, right? The cork, you know, with the big lips, like that, you know. <laughs> I was really, really adorable. Uh, <laughs> set the race back 50 years. <laughs> just, just walking on stage, you wiped out, like, all of the progress that had been made. But in those days, that was the, that was the uh, modus operandi in those days. Uh, all the comedians, all the black comedians had to black up. And my father would tell me, don't put the white gloves up to your face,
1: and that's the first thing I remember. How old were you when you were going on stage first?
0: Well, I won my first amateur contest at the age of three, and I sang, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you. (laughs) Uh, Standard theater, uh, yeah, the standard theater in Philadelphia was the Amherst contest, I won won $10, yes.
1: With your rendition of that?
0: With my rendition, I never saw any of that money and very little sense.
2: (laughs) 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 But that, of course, was just the beginning of a very storied career. And
0: uh, right after that, my dad and Will Maston put me in the act and I was was what was called an, an afterpiece. They would bring me out. They started me out by bringing me out for a bow. They would let me sing, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you. And about a year later, they put me in as a permanent part of the act. And uh, it was really exciting because to me, I was out with my family. I didn't learn about show business until, uh, oh, I'd say until I was about six or seven, that I was in a business. I thought it was this fun.
1: And then from then on, you were sort of almost continually... In well, the in, the,
0: in the show business world as it existed then, that was tradition. My mother was in show business, David, my father, the man that I call my uncle, but who really in actual point of fact was not, Will Mastin, uh, was my godfather. But I called him my uncle because he couldn't have been closer. Uh, they were in show business. Will, in those days, it was Will Mastin's Holiday in Dixieland. That was the name of the act, a big what they used to call, give us a good colored flash act. It was 20, and they, they did numbers like shake your feet, things like that, and the, you know, and see them shuffling along, you know. And uh, it was tradition, if, if someone had a kid, you brought him on. Because that's the proving, that was the proving ground. By the age of six, you were already yeah, I frantically done... busy. Yeah, I'd done two movies by the time I was six.
2: Indeed, Sammy's father and his uncle Will started him early, teaching Sammy the art of tap and flash dancing. By that point, America's burgeoning motion picture industry was already shaking the world of entertainment, and the vaudeville circuit, which had supported the elder Sammy for decades, was shrinking. Sammy Jr. seemed to innately understand the changing nature of the world of entertainment and that he'd have to adapt, and that meant learning how to do it all. But in those
0: days, you'd walk up to a performer and now this is what I've heard that I've done, like that. Show me that step. And the guy, that dancer, would show you that step. And he'd show it to you and say, thank you. That's the only thing I say about the, the young cats today that are making it. You know, they play guitar and they look groovy and they got a sound, but it's kind of frightening when they've done the 10 hit records, which they've got that made a millionaires, and they don't know how to bow to get off the stage. Yeah. That's frightening. <laughs>
2: By the age of 10, Sammy knew the stage intimately. He could tap, he could play instruments, he could sing, act, even do comedy routines. By his teenage years, he was the star attraction of his father's travelling show. By the late 1930s, the act was immensely popular, receiving billings with some of the biggest band leaders in the nation. Still a teenager, Sammy would begin building a network of agents, club owners and performers that would support him for the rest of his life. But Sammy was still just a kid. And a life on the road, a life hobnobbing with celebrities, artists, and band leaders, had its downsides.
1: Looking back on your childhood now, was it an enrichment when you draw up the balance sheet to be in show business that young? Was it a plus or a minus to your life, do you think? <sighs> That's tough. I resent
0: the fact that I never got an education. Uh, I'm talking about. The basics. I never went to grade school. I never went to any kind of school at all, and I resent that. I don't mean in anger against my parents. I'm talking. I just resent it because sometimes I feel so inadequate, and I'm not talking about verbalizing. I'm talking about just sitting down, writing. I write, I write like a second or third, fourth grader, you know, and I can't spell properly, and so much so that I, it finally bugged me enough that. Uh, when I go to New York, which I'm going to do a show, I'm going, to, I'm going to go and get my grade school education. And I'm going to hopefully try to lead myself to the way of getting a high school diploma, because I'd like to. I think, I'll, I think that uh, grade school will be sort of a, at the age of 52, grade school should be kind of <laughs> easy. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a hard decision, because I fought it. I wanted to do it a long time ago. And uh, my ego wouldn't let me do it, David. It really wouldn't, because here I am a star and, you know, where are you going to enroll? And somebody says to me, you know, but, but you can talk on every subject. And I said, yeah, being knowledgeable doesn't mean that you're educated, you know, and that's where it's at. You can be knowledgeable and read, but if you can't write, you know, if you can't do the, the basic ABCs, I have no desire to to want to be a college professor or nothing like that. I just would like to be able to take care of business and just write a letter to you or to any of my friends. So I'm going to go back. And so when you ask me, it is mixed blessings because what I've learned about show business, things
1: I learned when I was seven and eight years old, I'm applying now. What about the things that, as you say, you learned as you grew up the plus side of the childhood the things you learn from the the wings and so on i mean when did you when did you learn things like impressions and impersonations and that sort of thing
2: for those who might not be familiar of all of sammy davis jr's skills his talent as an impersonator was one of his greatest he was like a mockingbird with a natural gift for mimicking the sounds and stylings of other artists
0: now i learned how to do impersonations because larry storch and a man who is now a great writer, producer, director in Hollywood by the name of Dick Wesson, taught me. I walked up, I said, How do you do Humphrey Bogart? You know? And he said, Well, do you want to learn it? I said, Yeah, how do you do it? And they looked at me, you know, okay, and okay, well will I do it, and they showed me how to do it.
2: But Sammy wasn't able to focus just on his impressions. It was the early 1940s and war had erupted in Europe and the Pacific. Instead, he found himself having to hone his skills while serving in the military.
0: So when I was doing impressions, I started with the guys on the road, then I went into the army. I was 17 at the time. And I was in the army as in the infantry. Now if you can imagine me, five five, 115 pounds, that shows you how desperate America was to service. <laughs> <them>. <laughs> And I'm in the infantry, and I took 16 weeks of basic training. I was in the first integrated group of infantrymen. They hand-picked it. It was an experimental thing. And that was an experience for me, because to be a part of that. And it was hard. It was emotional, because when you're with your own, and as a kid, being around... My people, 90% of the time, we stayed at the black hotels, ate in the black restaurants, uh, socialized with the the other blacks within that community because it was part of belonging and feeling comfortable and also part of the legal structure, you know, because there was still all of the the no-nos. So I grew up in that atmosphere, and they had never seen, my family included, had never seen a black man do Jimmy Cagney or John Garfield or or Jimmy Stewart or any of the popular guys. So I started doing it in the army when I got with this integrated group. And they guys would laugh. The white guys would laugh and the black guys would look at me like this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sammy's army audience wasn't nearly as easygoing as he suggests to Dad. In fact, he faced terrible racist hostility. The white soldiers in his unit broke his nose three times, on one occasion, they doused him in white paint and even urinated in his drinks. But these experiences just emboldened Sammy. The cultural critic, Gerald Early, argues that Davis's time in the military drove him to, quote, transcend all those humiliations, and they're going to love him as an entertainer no matter how much they hate him as a black, end quote. And to prove it, Sammy would do something that was unthinkable to his father's generation— He would do impressions of white entertainers in front of white audiences.
0: When I got out of the army, we were living in, my dad and Will were living in a little hotel in Los Angeles. We were working at a place called Shep's Playhouse. We got a good job because as soon as the guys found out, the kid's back in the act, boom. So we went out, same act we had done before I went into the army. So I'm 18 years old. I step up and I say, thank you very much. It's nice to be out of the army. I got something that my dad and uncle don't know that I can do. I'm gonna do it for you nice folks tonight. So I said, would you give me a little as time goes by? And the picture Casablanca was a smash at the time. I got up to the microphone and I said, uh, all right, if you played it for her, you can play it for me, you understand? (laughs) And Will Mastin, the man who's my godfather, he looked at me in shock, like that. <laughs> and I'm looking at him for approval and he's looking at me like this. Now, I, I, and the audience applauded, yay, 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 yay. I said, okay, if you like that one, how about this? You dirty rat, you're the guy that gave it to my brother in the back. Yeah, they applauded. All right, and I said, how about Jimmy Stewart? You know, I, well, well, was. Huh? I'd really like to say that it really is a pleasure to be back among my my own folk. And while they went, we got off the stage, people were standing, we got into the dressing room. My father said, if you ever do that again, I'm gonna kill you.
2: It's safe to say that Sammy would do it again. In 1951, he'd famously do a set of songs and impressions at Ciro's nightclub in Hollywood that would send the celebrity stuffed audience into an absolute frenzy. That night would help launch his solo career. By the mid 50s, Sammy was more than just a rising star, he was a phenomenon. He'd been offered his own television show, a role on a Broadway musical, and a slot singing for major motion pictures. Americans quickly learned that Sammy was more than just a singer. Much more, in fact. The 25-year-old possessed an unparalleled versatility. Sammy could sing masterfully in dozens of different genres and styles. And when he talked to Dad in 1970, he credited that ability to his years of practice as an impressionist.
1: I trying to think of the word, vocal. Uh, impersonations is easier or more difficult for you than the verbal ones? No,
0: the, uh, the singing things became easy because, as a hoofer, which I was all of my life,
1: I was a hoofer. I love that word. You
0: know, and,
1: uh, <laughs> hoofer, that's it. Great word. Put
0: on them dancing shoes and hoof for me, baby. <laughs> I used to love to dance, but I realized that dancing, to tap dance, is the, one of the hardest things in the world it's like a heavy to be a heavyweight fighter heavyweight champion i should say in trim. to you really because your legs these muscles here when you tap dance it's like a ballet dancer you did it if you lay off for four months forget it it's over go to a hospital get a wheelchair <laughs> but that's it get two small boys to carry you you will never do it again so i wanted to be a singer because i felt that that was easier and i started to emulate the guys who were popular, and the guys that I'd done, which was Billy Eckstein, Frank Sinatra, and in my early records. Let me tell you something I never said to anybody before, ever. It's oh, Do you know it's only been the last two years that I got my own sound? Only the last two years. Because just say, who's that? Oh that's, oh, that's Sammy Davis, oh. But I used to listen, so you got copying things. And that led me to doing voices singing voices.
2: A lot of those voices came from singers on the circuit who'd quickly become Sammy's friends.
0: To show you what Frank does with a song, what he can what he's capable of doing. Nobody can really impersonate Sinatra. There's guys that emulate him, and I'm just from maybe one of them, but what he does with a word all the way, for instance, if it was sung by Billy Eckstein. When somebody loves you it's no good unless she love you right we. now Frank says uh, no before I do Frank let's do a couple of more so they can get the difference uh, Nat <laughs> the good of lean years and all the in-between years all the why he said why now, now if you have uh, a Frankie Lane I'm, and I, I'm trying to relate to people that impressed me you had Frankie Lane who always did you know drooling. In the tallest dream. That's how it? Now that same line If a guy like Tony Bennett Sang it, right? Now as an impersonator, what do you do? You take the eccentricities Of the individual And you enlarge upon it and This is what you have to do to make it humorous So with a Tony Bennett Tony has a lisp We all know that and he's a good friend, and I've done this impression for him so many times, so I don't feel ashamed of doing it. He would say, Taller, taller than the tallest Twist. and That's how it's got feel. And I say, I say deeper, deeper than the deep blue seers. That's how deep it goes. If it's the wheel But that's the fun Now, getting back... You get back to, uh, to Frank Again, continuing with the song, I would say When somebody needs you, it's no good Unless she needs you All the way Now, take what he does This is what makes Frank Sinatra What every singer says, oh my goodness, his phrasing. Because I said, all the way, not Frank, he goes, when somebody needs you, it's no good unless she needs you. Yes and all the in between years come. What me all up in here and the enunciation is so perfect that you just it just grooves you totally to hear him pronounce a word. I have to go for a big note at the end. All the way. I don't do impressions anymore, but when I used to really do impressions, every time I met one of the celebrities, I would say to them, How come you did that? Frank Sinatra, now we go into what people are going to say is name dropping, but they happen to be friends. But Frank socially would take me. We went to Bogart's house, and he said, uh, We walked in, and uh, his wife, then Betty Bacall, said, uh, Come on in, Sam, have a drink. And I said, I don't drink. And over my shoulder, I heard, if you don't drink, then you might as well leave the place. <laughs> and I, I looked him back, and there's Humphrey Bogart, man. Now, I'm talking about 1951, 50, Bogart. Wow. My goodness, you know. And he said, "Let me show you what I do." He said, "Because you're not doing it right." <laughs> so, subsequently,
1: we'll bring the mic over. Subsequently, the
0: you've mic. got right. you've got this. All right, audience, there. nobody make a move. That and the squinty eyes. I happen to stay in this desert because the cops are after me and I'm going to stay here. I'm not playing any games with you. If you make a move, I'll kill the first person that does it.
2: Of course, Sammy was much more than just an impersonator. He had his own style, too. And as a singer, he had a special way of making a song all his own. And there's no better example than his signature song, Mr. Bojangles.
0: Mr. Bojangles uh, Mr. Jangles.
2: A tune that, to him, represented all of the black artists who was still, in Sammy's words, huffing it on the street. In the song, the singer's still performing, but now doing so in jail, in scraggy clothes.
0: Bojangles is special because I think the people, again, the audience, feels an innate, how many people in this audience have seen me live? All right, did you get the impression when I did Bojangles that there was a part of me on that stage? Yes. See, that's very important. A knew man, Bojangles, and he danced for you in worn-out shoes. Now I'll tell you something that I've never said publicly before. That's my fear that I'll wind up like Bojangles, the Bojangles in the song. Even though I, you know, thank the good Lord, I am. Um, that's wood, yeah. I <clears throat> ain't taking no chances. <laughs> uh, that, that man, that, that culmination of different black performers, minstrels that I've known, performers who got hooked on junk, who got wiped out by alcohol, got wiped out by changing of times, I've seen them disappear, great dancers, great stylists. And when I do that number, some nights... Not every night, not every show, but some nights I get so hung up in it. That's that's me, I'm projected, that's how I'll be when I'm 70 years old, man. I'll still be working, I'll be working little giants, and I'll talk about what I used to be, and that'll be the end of it. I met him in a cell In New Orleans I was Well, I was down and out The basic underlying emotion of the song, I think, the people, good, sensitive people in the audience, says, that's him, that's part of him. And that's why it it works for me. I don't think, I don't regard it as just the song.
1: Well, that's why whenever I'm watching you, I always ask you, if I see you beforehand, are you going to do, Mr. Bojangles, because there's you in that.
0: Then he shook his head Lord, when he shook his head I could swear I heard someone say please Mister Bo Jangles Mister Bo Jangles Mister Bojangles come back and dance.
2: Sammy, of course, did not turn out like Bojangles. He joined the Rat Pack, he began starring in films such as Ocean's Eleven, he headlined concert after concert in Las Vegas, pumped out top 40 hits, and started his own talk show in 1963. But when he joined Dad for the final time in 1978, aged 52, he did reflect on how close he came to letting it all fall apart, as he fell for the trappings of fame drink and drugs at times in his career.
1: I mean, in the last five years, from when you said, I realised I was burning the candle at both ends and so on, there's been a change. And in the middle, too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, it's... See, what you need in this business if, if the, if the <laughs> gods of fame have been nice enough to smile upon you, as they have been for me, you got to go bananas. I don't give two cents to anyone who says, oh, no, I've always been straight, with a raised eyebrow. I've never, you know. I went bananas. And I really went bananas in terms of clothing. I went bananas in terms of my lifestyle. And I did it all because I had to experience it. And somehow somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, you better give that up because you can't deal with it. Because I was into drugs and I couldn't deal with it. And again, always being in show business motivated my pulling back and going, wait a minute, this is wrong for me. Because I remember one night I walked on the stage and I, was, and I was really whacked out of my head, man. And I walked on the stage and i was doing it and I realized I thought I was performing well and I was really winging it. And suddenly I told the same joke twice and didn't realize it. And I turned to George, as we signaled for a number, and I said to George, I don't know why the joke didn't work. He said it worked well the first time. <laughs> and it was like someone just, cold water hit in your face. And I said, whatever that stuff does to me, I'm never going to do it anymore, because it's robbing me of the one thing that has motivated my living, and that is communication between me and that audience and doing a good performance that I can be proud
2: of. By the 1970s, Sammy began to clean himself up. He remarried, slowed down and returned to the work that he found most meaningful. And more importantly, he joined the many civil rights protest movements that were rocking the 60s.
1: Was there a moment when things got a lot happier? Did it change suddenly and life get a lot happier or what?
0: Yeah, uh, I
1: think, quite frankly,
0: it was when my, my own people accepted me and that happened about three and a half years ago and uh, it started to get really nice and pretty, you know.
1: Three and a half years ago, that's very exact. Yeah. What, what happens to three and a half years ago?
0: I don't know. Uh, three and a half years ago, I, I, I guess I became a little more vocal and uh, things that I had ignored, David, all my life, you know, uh, I suddenly said, I cannot stand by and do it a particular way anymore and I I am my brother's keep all the cliches I guess you say the guilt it's part of it because uh, you never do enough
2: just a few years earlier Martin Luther King Jr had been assassinated Sammy knew King personally and while he'd received some criticism earlier in his career for not doing enough for civil rights causes by the late 60s that was far from the case Sammy used his star power to fundraise for civil rights raising more money than any other celebrity in America.
0: But if you're a black entertainer, David, the point of view is quite simple. The brother on the corner has got to know, forget about the $100,000 benefit for the NAACP or the SCLC. He would get a bigger kick if you walked on the corner and said, hey, baby, what's happening? Because he knows then, hey, yeah, He's still me. I had ignored that part of it for such a long time because I was too busy trying to to be a success. I was too busy trying to be a star, see? And I just (laughs) forgot about uh, Cat in the Corner because I'm off the corner. As a matter of fact, uh, I hate that phrase that says, I come from the ghetto because I don't think that any black performer ever left it. You know, we're, we're all still there, whether it's morally, spiritually, we're all there, you know. And I, I've never been happier with self than I am now. I've done it, man. I've, I've done all of the things that I wanted to do. When I walk down the street in various countries and people smile and they wave at me, a cab driver waves at me like this. A few nights ago for the Logies, I walked on the stage. I mean the people just stood and just applauded a performer, beginning color, race, religion, everything else. Hey, he was good tonight. And I'd like to think that all of the things that I went through in the bad days
1: make me appreciate now so much more, both on stage and off. Are you an optimist do you think Do you think the world is is making progress, America making progress on the subject of the races getting together? I think
0: it's getting better. there is still a lot to do uh, and but it cannot be legislated. you know there are areas where you cry because It really means a one-to-one with you and me. And nobody can tell us to like each other. Nobody can tell kids to like each other. They've got to be exposed to each other. And then you pick out the good guys and the bad guys. I'll pick out the good guys and the bad guys. But good people, it's time for the good people in the various countries to be vocal. It is time for the people who say, I don't want to get involved to get involved so their heads can be counted, their numbers can be counted. But I do see positive things, I, but I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I will not be a pessimist, because I figure in a country that created me, allowed me to get to where I am, even as an entertainer, that allowed Muhammad Ali to refuse to go into a Vietnam War, which everybody now says was very, very good, but at the time when he did it, it was not the most popular game in town, but see, it's like a collage. One thing fits on another till the final picture. And we've still got a lot of pieces to put in. But I depend on good people, man. Good people. That's who you got to depend on.
2: I have to say, here was an example of Dad at his best, making his interview subjects so comfortable that they spill their soul. Despite the glare of the lights, the TV camera, the audience... Dad and Sammy were able to have an intimate conversation that would be, frankly, impossible to imagine on live television today.
1: Sammy, you've shared so much with us this evening. And one last question. If someone asked you now, with with the experience with which you look back at having seen it all and lived it all, what's, what's the most important, most important lesson you've learned in the past few years?
0: It's hard. I have been able to walk with giants man, with the Kings, the Kennedys, uh, to be a part of many eras in our history and not to have been a front runner, but to have just been a part of it. I watched the wipeout of great men, assassinations, social wipeouts, I've remained a performer. I have survived. Uh, I am thankful, but I'm not overconfident. I used to be overconfident without being thankful. I had an ego that transcended the norm that we're supposed to have. But that's in balance. I got a lifestyle that now I live because I want to live it, not because it's the image that is expected of me. I remember if I would have come on the show without wearing all of the, 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 the gear, without having something outrageous on, I would have felt uncomfortable. I I've, I've still have fears. I fear my... Uh, not fear of show business, not fear of my establishment in show business. I have fears about myself in terms of selectivity. I'm, I'm afraid of friends. Nobody's going to get inside to hurt anymore. I can't, I can't afford that luxury. And if it happens, it will happen only because I trust it. And to trust is wonderful because that means you love. And I never want to lose that, but I'm going to be protective of that and try to enhance what I have and be respectful to the people who have put me there. And I guess that sums me up and try to make that lady I'm married to happy and Try to put up with her and have her put up with me because it's a two-way street because there ain't no angels man they're all up there you know but try to say hey i'm a human being i make mistakes you make mistakes live on that basis but also to be aware of the fact that i think that god put me here for a purpose and i'm not born again i'm not going that but i'm just saying he put me here for a purpose try to find out what the purpose is and live up to it
2: yes, sir.
1: Is there a song that sums up that philosophy? Your philosophy? What's the song that sums up your philosophy? Uh, is it in know. my own lifetime? Well,
0: there's a couple, you know, depending on what part of my life you're looking for, you know. George, what do we do in my own lifetime? Because at this stage in my life, this is sort of my philosophy. This is what I want for my kids. I'd like to do it for you. while I'm still here, I want to know. Doubt that no one can lock us in or lock us out We have climbed higher, much higher than I thought we'd climb. It's a long journey and even though the end's in sight There's not much time. I want to know we haven't built on sand in my
1: Unbelievable! We've come to the end of ninety minutes. There's so much more to talk about on another occasion. Will you come back again, sir? Anytime you want it. And ladies and gentlemen, I just think that wherever you are, here in the theatre or at home, stand up with me and applaud this man.
2: In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, multiple Oscar winner and controversial activist Jane Fonda.
1: Because you said once, you said that you wouldn't have gone to psychiatrist, nor would you have acted if you'd been happy, you said once. I don't think actors are necessarily more
0: or less unhappy than other people. They're unhappy people who pretend to be other unhappy people
1: so that a lot of unhappy people will love them (laughs) (laughs) and make them happy.
2: The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Weiss and Mr. jangles, and In My Own Lifetime, performed by Sammy Davis Jr., courtesy of Republic Under License from Universal Music Operations Limited. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and to Whitehorse Pictures.